All right, welcome back to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. In our previous recording, we looked at the first little bit of this praise to God. And in this recording, we're going to continue exploring and reflecting on this beautiful praise to God that, that Paul offers here at the outset of the letter to Ephesians. As we noted in our last recording, this is really unusual for Paul because normally he has a Thanksgiving prayer at this point in his letter, but here he breaks that pattern to praise God. And in the first handful of verses of that praise, he's praised God for every spiritual blessing he's given us in Christ, and then he's listing those off. He's talked about how God chose us in Christ, how he predestined us unto the adoption of sons, how he has given us his grace and we exist to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And we said the beloved is a way of referring to Jesus there because all of this takes place in and through Christ. And so in this recording, we are going to look at verses 7 through 14, the second part of this uh, praise to God here as we continue just to listen in on how Paul is praising God because of everything God has done for us in Jesus. And so he picks up in verse 7 of chapter 1 and says, in him, in him playing off of in the beloved. And so in whom? In the beloved. It's in Jesus, in the beloved, we have redemption through his blood. What is redemption? Well, the idea of the word redemption is really this idea of deliverance, of setting free. And in most of Greek literature, the particular word translated redemption is just lutrosis. But in the New Testament, the usual word for redemption is apolutrosis. Now, there may not be any significance to the prefix apa on it, or it may compound the intensity, just as a way to distinguish Christ's redemption from all other redemption, that this is no little redemption, this is the big redemption. It's possible, but there may be no significant to the compound, since it's just the main word for redemption in the New Testament. Here's the main thing to know about the word redemption. The word redemption always has two elements in this word in the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day. One is the idea of paying a price, and the other one is to set something free. Those two elements are the really at the heart culturally and of the word redemption. You pay a price to set someone or something free. That's the basic idea of redemption. The most common way the word showed up in the world of Paul's day was in the slave market. Uh, setting a slave or a captive free by paying a redemption price, a liberation price for them. And so that's very, very central to this whole idea of redemption. And that uh, is important here in the context of uh, Ephesians chapter 1 because of what Paul says next. He says, in him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption. There has been uh, a, a liberation price, a price paid to set us free. And he says, through his blood. Well, the idea would suggest then that we have redemption through his blood, that his blood is the price that was paid to purchase the freedom for God's people. Some have objected to this idea of paying a price, specifically paying the price of Jesus' blood, really saying it confuses the point. Uh, and the reason they say that is because in the Old Testament, redemption is more just the idea of a general sense of deliverance. Um, and there's no clarity in the New Testament about who the price is paid to. And so some have objected, saying it just confuses the point that, you know, that who, 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 
who is the price paid to for the re redemption price, right? But the New Testament authors see no need to specify a recipient of the price paid. And so we shouldn't either. The idea is simply that sin leads to bondage, and God sets us free from that bondage, and he does so at the great cost of his son's life. That's the idea here in Ephesians, that in the beloved, how have we experienced the blessings of God and the grace of God? Well, we've experienced that through the great cost of God's beloved son's death. It was through his blood. And so that's the way we need to understand what Paul is saying here. And specifically, the result of that is the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's how the redemption is amplified here. We have redemption. What kind of redemption? Well, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In fact, the word forgiveness continues really this imagery of um, freedom and being liberated. The word uh, forgiveness is aphasis in Greek, which is not Paul's usual word forgiveness. It's kind of unique. More often, Paul uses the verb form of grace, charizomai, to show favor. But here, he uses aphasis, which is more the idea of to, to release, to let something go, to set free. It's often the idea of like a cancellation of a debt or something like that. And that fits very much the imagery of redemption here, and that very well may be why Paul uses it here, that forgiveness of our trespasses is this cancellation of them, this cancellation of the debt, this just letting that go and being done with that and granting amnesty to us. And so in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness, the cancellation of our trespasses, the release from the penalty of and the debt of and the burden of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Notice that, that God did this again according to the riches, not just a little bit, but the riches of his grace, that God is rich in grace. He is abundant in grace. He, he, he doesn't have a short supply of it. He's got an overwhelming rich supply of his grace. And it's because of the riches of his grace that now in Jesus, we have experienced redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And notice what's said at the beginning of verse 8 about his grace, the riches of his grace, which he, his grace, which he lavished on us. Catch that. God didn't just sprinkle a little bit of grace on us in Christ. He didn't just say, here's a little bit. That'll do it. He wasn't like stingy with his grace. He lavished it on us. In fact, the word lavished, the word literally means to overflow in grace upon us. Like it just bubbled out of him and overwhelmed out of him and just kind of all over us. He just poured out his grace. It just overflowed out of him all over us. That's how much grace we've experienced him. I can't help but think of the Apostle John's word at the beginning of his gospel where he says that in Jesus we have experienced grace upon grace, like piles and piles of grace just heaped upon each other. That's what we've experienced. And so in Jesus we have experienced grace upon grace. He lavished it on us. Then Paul goes on in his praise and says, In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. It's possible that in all wisdom and insight goes with the grace that he lavished on us. They lavished it upon us in all wisdom and insight. Or again, it's possible that it goes with making known to us the mystery of his will. It's not clear because it's a long run-on sentence, as we've said before. I tend to think it goes with the latter because it makes more sense to me. But 
it's not 100% clear. And either way, it doesn't matter. Um, that if it's his grace that he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, praise God for that. If it's making known to us the mystery of his will in all wisdom and insight, praise God for that. Both are an expression of and a demonstration of God's wisdom and insight. And so in his wisdom and insight, he did all of this for us, right? And in his wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, that we have been invited into the inner, kind of the inner circle of what God's up to in the world. Like, not everyone has this insight. Not everyone has this knowledge. Not everyone has this understanding of God's great plan for the universe. But you know what God is up to. As those in Christ, you know what God is up to in the world. You know what his plans include. You know where the story is going. You know what God is doing. Um, God has made known to you in Christ what he's doing in this world. Um, and so he, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. And this idea of mystery, uh, you see it in Colossians and you see it here quite a bit in Ephesians. It's really the idea of that, that God had a purpose, God had a plan, and it's unclear to, to really humankind. It wasn't totally fleshed out, even in the Old Testament, but now God has revealed it. It's, it's not that it's, it's this secret knowledge that only the elite few could know. It's sort of more the idea of that uh, God has made known his will. It can be experienced in Christ. And while it may be a mystery to others, he, he has now made that secret known to us. It's an open secret um, for those in Christ. It's not hidden. It's not for the elite. It's for anybody who wants to know it in Christ. And so in Christ, we've experienced the grace of God making known his will to us. That's another way he demonstrated his grace to us was making known the mystery of his will, again, according to his kind intention, according to his good pleasure. God wanted to do this. God wanted us to be on the inside. He wanted us to know what he was up to in the world. It brought him pleasure to do so. So again, just think about the heart of God that Paul is describing in this prayer and how it compares to your understanding of the heart of God, that God is generous, lavish, gracious, giving, open, transparent. He wants to make himself and his plans known to, to humankind. And so it brought him pleasure to do so. That's who God is. He's the one who made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in Christ. And so again, he planned this and purposed this in Jesus, and it's all found in him. And then in verse 10, he kind of describes what he has at this point, specifically in 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 mind by the mystery of his will. He uses that differently. We'll see it a little bit later in chapter 3. But here, what what is really he thinking of by the mystery of God's will? Well, the mystery of his will with a view, this is the way it's translated in the New American Standard, verse 10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. What in the world does that mean? Um, what is he talking about there? Uh, well, when he says that he made known to us the mystery of his will with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. What he's getting at is um, with a view to, that is, for the purpose of, this is God's plans, what God planned to do in Christ, what's part of God's overall big plan for the universe in Christ. And so the word administration here is the Greek word oikonomia, which can refer to 
like an assignment, a task, a responsibility. That's It's used that way. So an assigned task or oikonomia can mean a plan, a program, a management plan, like a kind of a strategic plan. Well, that's the way it's used here, that second sense. So when they've translated administration to mean like a strategic plan, like God's overall plan for the universe. And so he says that um, God is let us in on what his strategic plan is, what his overall big plan is for the universe. That's the idea. So with a view to an administration means that God has let us in on his strategic plan that's suitable to the fullness of times. And what does he mean by that? Well, the fullness of times is the idea when the, when the times are complete, when the times are fulfilled. And so if I were to summarize what Paul is saying here, that God had from all eternity formulated a plan for the universe to be put in effect when the time, right time came. That's the idea. This plan had Christ at its center, and it was inaugurated when Christ came. And it will be ultimately completed when Christ comes again. And God's let us in on what that plan is. You're in the know. You know what God is up to. You know what his plan is. And so what, is, what God is doing in Christ is the destiny of the universe. This is the mystery that's now revealed uh, to us who are in Christ. And the ultimate uh, culmination of all that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. And so again, what he's saying is we know, we know that Christ is the ultimate king and God is bringing everything together under Christ. So it's the purpose or the goal of God's plan is to sum everything up. That is to unite everything together, to put all the parts back to working order again in Christ, who whole in him. That's the idea. And so uh, this word summing up refers to really the orderly summation of what was previously laid out in piecemeal form. And so you have bits and pieces and all of this. Well, God is bringing all all of that together into one complete whole in Christ. And so Christ is the centerpiece, the organizing principle of the universe. And God will bring the whole universe and all things together in Christ. That's where the story is going. That's what his big plan is all about. And we know that. We who are in Christ know what that what this is about, that God plans to sum up all things in Christ, both the things in the heavens and the things in Christ, he plans to bring them all together in him. And so Paul praises God that in Christ we have been given this huge blessing, this huge gift of being on the inside of what God is up to in the universe. He continues his praise to God in verses 11 through 13. And some have seen a distinction being made in those verses between Jews in verses 11 and 12, and Gentiles in verse 13. The reason for seeing this distinction is in verse 11, he says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And then in verse 13, he says, in him you also. And so some have said, it's in him we Jews have obtained an inheritance. In verse 13, in him you Gentiles also. And some have seen that distinction there. And that is possible if Paul is doing that, however, it's pretty fluid and pretty unclear. 
the reason for that is because he's used the first person plural we 10 times already at this point in the praise just to refer to all believers. And if he's shifted then to all of a sudden saying we Jews, that would be a little bit awkward and a little bit confusing. Paul does have this distinction in mind in the letter to uh, Ephesians. We see a whole paragraph on it in Ephesians chapter 2. So we know that distinction is at some point going to show up in Paul's writing. And in that sense, it may sort of be in the back of Paul's mind here, maybe implicit. Maybe he's making that distinction here. It's just not super clear. I tend to think um, Paul does in some regard have two different groups of mind in this section. And and that implicit this contrast, at least, is between, as he calls it, we who were first to hope in Christ, the early believers, which was predominantly Jewish, and you, meaning you uh, there in Ephesus and the surrounding area. So I think he has we who first believed in Christ and you who I'm directly writing to. He does seem to have that in mind here and what follows, and that may shape some of the language of what he says. But it's not a super, super hard distinction and a super clear distinction. Let's read down through what he says. Let me read verse 11, hear what he says, and then we'll comment on it. He says this, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. It's that latter phrase that makes me think he has some distinction in mind, we who are the first to hope in Christ, and maybe he implicitly has uh, we Jews who are the first to hope in Christ in mind. It's just not 100% clear. But notice what he says. He says, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Could be that he's talking about we have obtained an inheritance, or it could be that we were we are an inheritance. The language isn't super clear there. In fact, if you read the, the NIV, it'll say we were chosen and just restate that and you lose the whole idea of inheritance altogether. And so they've taken it in the sense that we're God's inheritance. And so they've just freed it up as we were chosen. And it's possible um, that it, it could be that. Um, and the difficulty is, is that there there's it's left open ended and unspecified. That's just the verb klerao. We were allotted. We were assigned. Well, what were we allotted? Uh, we were allotted to God as if we're the, the inheritance for God. Well, sometimes the word is used that, and that's the, what the NIV has taken, is we were chosen. Uh, or we were allotted an inheritance, our share in the, the family inheritance. And I tend to think that's better, particularly in view of the fact that the inheritance is explicitly mentioned, clearly mentioned, shortly hereafter. So I tend to think he's saying, we've obtained an inheritance. I think that's the best way to read it, even though it's not 100% clear. So in him, we have obtained an inheritance. We've been given an inheritance. And that fits in with the adoption as sons theme that we mentioned in our last recording, where uh, Paul says we were... We were predestined uh, unto the adoption as his children. And that always is used in an inheritance context in Paul's writings. And so this clearly fits that there. We've obtained an inheritance. In other words, we're going to inherit everything that God has promised to his people, everything that God has planned for the universe. We've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Notice how God is described there in verse 11, that God is the one who works all things 
after the counsel of his will, that God is completely sovereign and that God, whatever God wants to get done in this world, God gets done. Whatever God purposes gets done. Whatever God plans gets done. God is completely sovereign. Um, and the, the best way to understand that sovereignty of God, in my understanding of Scripture, is that God controls all things. I think some people have misunderstood sovereignty to, to mean causation, that God must cause all things. But sovereignty never means that. It just means God controls all things. And so everything that God wants to happen eventually happens, even if it means God is like a master chess player and he manipulates the parts until everything he wants done gets done because he can anticipate the moves ahead of time. And so God controls everything that happens in the universe. He's in charge of it. He's in control. He works out all his purposes and all his plans after the counsel of his will. And so we've obtained an inheritance, he says in verse 12, to the end, here's the refrain again, that we who are the first to hope in Christ uh, should be to the praise of his glory. And that phrase, we who are the first to hope in Christ, to me, that at least distinguishes early believers from Paul's original audience, the Ephesians and others, at least makes that distinction there. Um, it may make the distinction between Jews and Gentiles, who were the very first to hope in Christ. Well, it would be the Jews. In fact, in chapter 2, when you read it, he talks about the Gentiles having no hope being without Christ in the world. And uh, he's saying that the, the Jews themselves did have hope and they did have Christ even before Christ came because they looked forward to his coming. And so they were the first hope in Christ. They looked forward to it before Christ came. When Christ did come, who were the first believers in Christ? They were the Jews. And so it very well may be that Paul has that distinction in mind. It's just not super clear here. And it's a little bit implicit if he does. Bare minimum, he has early believers in mind, believers other than the original audience. And so he says, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory, that the early Christians would be um, those for the praise of his glory. And then, verse 13, in him you also, you Ephesians, you Christians there in the towns in Asia Minor, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, so after hearing uh, the gospel preached to you, you too believed. And you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And there you get the refrain again at the end. So let's just hit a few details out of verse 13. In him, once again in Christ, you also, probably meaning direct address to his audience, you Gentiles, you Ephesians, you Christians there, whatever he means by that, some sort of distinction, it seems is implied there. You also, after listening to the message of the truth, which he clarifies the message of truth is the gospel of your salvation, the good news of your salvation. So the good news, probably the best way to free that up as the good news that led to your salvation. Um, after you heard it, how did you receive it? How did you experience the, the gospel? How did you enter into Christ? Well, you believed. You believed in him. And so having believed in this message, what happened? What did God do for you? You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. When you hear that word sealed, the picture you need to have in mind from the ancient world, it's the picture of, say, a person of authority, a king, a governor, a ruler of some sort, has a ring with his insignia on it. 
And whenever he would send out an official communication, um, he would melt some clay or some wax and he would put his insignia on it. Boom, that, that would signify, this is mine. This is from me. That's the imagery behind sealed. And so the idea of sealed is the idea of being stamped with the mark of God, making it clear that you belong to him. And so that's the idea here. You were stamped with the very mark, the very seal of God. And so it's official. You're his. You're his. You belong to him. And so you also, having believed in the gospel, you were sealed with God's seal. You were marked with God's seal so that it was clear you belonged to him. What is that seal? Well, specifically, he says it's the Holy Spirit who was promised. You've been given the Holy Spirit. He was poured out on you. You have received the very Spirit of God. And that means you're marked out as God's people. So you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The reason he's called the Holy Spirit of promise is probably because he was promised in the, the Old Testament. He was promised in the prophets that in the days of the Messiah, when the, the Messiah comes, God's going to pour out his spirit on all people, and that will be the mark that they belong to him. God will pour out his seal, uh, his spirit on them, and they will, they will uh, be full of his spirit. And so the spirit was promised in Ezekiel 36, 27, for example. The spirit was promised in Isaiah 44, 3. And so he is the Holy Spirit of promise in that sense. Um, that the Spirit guarantees all that God has for us. And so he was the Spirit of promise. Now it could be, uh, and maybe it's both here, but he's He's also the Holy Spirit who guarantees what God has promised to us. That if you have the Spirit of God, then God's going to raise you up from the dead. Um, and so it could be that idea, the Holy Spirit, who guarantees what's promised. But I, I tend to think the emphasis on, is on the Holy Spirit of promise, who is promised to the people of God. And so you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And this Holy Spirit is notice given in verse 14 as a pledge of our inheritance. Um, that is uh, as like a down payment, a first installment, a guarantee that uh, you will receive the inheritance. And so the, the Spirit within and among God's people is the down payment, the first installment uh, it's, uh, of God's inheritance that we are going to receive. And so we have been, the Spirit has been given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Another awkward phrase there. Frank Thielman in his commentary contends that the, the basic meaning of this phrase, redemption of God's own uh, possession, is the idea of like, God's own saved remnant, the saved remnant of God. And so the idea seems to be unto the redemption of, of the saved remnant to the praise of God's glory. And that would mean that um, we're talking about the, the people of God that have now been delivered from sin and death and have received all that God has promised, the remnant of God's people, and now we exist once again to the praise of his glory. And so with that, Paul ends his extended praise to God for all the blessings that we have in Christ. And if you just go back through that and read through this whole thing and list off these blessings, it is a beautiful testimony to what God has done for us in Christ. And so let me just wrap up this section with just a couple a couple reflections, a couple principles for us to reflect on and apply out of this. The first is 
just the repetition in this section of in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, through Christ. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction to this section in our last recording, this is the idea of like Christian geography. We, we, we live like both in our own town and in Jesus. Um, that ultimately our identity is wrapped up not by our own town, but by Jesus, this union with Christ. He is ultimately the place we reside, and our identity is in him. And thus, all these spiritual blessings are experienced in him, through him, with him. Um, Klein Snodgrass, in his commentary on Ephesians, says, People sin because they forget God. How strange that we forget the very place that we live. That's where we live. We live in God through Christ. And Christ is this vast treasure of spiritual blessing. And because we live in him, we enjoy those blessings. And so don't forget where you live. You live in Christ. And your life is caught up with him and everything he's doing in the world. That's where you live and that's who you are. That's really important. So remember that you're in Christ. You're united with him. And everything that's true about him is now true about you. Second principle, I think it's worth just a stepping back, big picture, and reflecting on out of this section is just worship. Like, think about this. This is you get to listen in on Paul praise God here. Here's an apostle who had this, you know, this incredible vision of Jesus on the Damascus Road, and here he who has walked with Jesus for thirty plus years and served his served him with all his life. Here's how he praises God. Um, and we get to learn from him what praise can sound like, what praise ought to be to be like. And notice here how intensely theological it is for Paul. And that's because theology really is at the heart of worship. Um, we worship God for who he is and for what he's done. And so the more we come to understand God according to the scriptures, the deeper our worship will be. The more we come to understand what God has done in Christ, according to the scriptures, the deeper our worship will be. That um, a greater knowledge of God leads to a greater worship of God. Um, and a greater knowledge of God leads to even deeper wonder and amazement. And that leads to deeper worship. And so um, when, when we read through this and we hear that we exist to the praise of his glory, may we be a people who learn to worship God in everything we do. May our very lives be a worship to God for the kind of stuff that Paul is describing here, because God has been so good to us and has done so much to us. And so listen in on what Paul says and let this begin to influence how you worship and how you praise God like Paul worships and Paul praises God.